0: The event before us takes place in the days just before our Lord was crucified. Jesus is teaching in the court of the women at the temple, so-called because this is as far as the women could go in the temple complex. Here's where Mary and Joseph brought the eight-day-old Jesus to have him dedicated. It was here where old Simeon, who had been promised by the Lord that he would not die until he saw the Messiah, And when he beheld that couple entering into the court of women, he took the baby from Mary and held him up and said, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. It was where godly Anna, a widow for over 80 years, and she herself over 100 years old, had spent her entire widowhood in fasting and prayer at the temple looking for the coming of the Messiah. And at that moment when Simeon lifted up the baby Jesus and said, mine eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. And she in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that look for redemption in Jerusalem. And now years later, our Lord is teaching here. He is exposing the error of the apostate religious system that all that temple complex now represented in verses 35 through 37, he uses Psalm 110 to prove his deity. And he asks a question. The Sanhedrin has been plotting the high Jewish council of 70, the highest governing group of Israel, have been plotting to take his life. They've had three unsuccessful attempts They failed three times, and here Jesus averted each one of these assassination efforts because he will not be assassinated. He will lay down his life of his own accord, and he said, I will take it up again. But in verse 35, he says, how say the scribes that Christ is the son of David, the Messiah? How is it that the Messiah will be called the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, the Lord said to my Lord, the Father said to the Son, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies my footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. He's saying David calls Messiah Lord, and whence then is he his son? David pictures God speaking to Messiah, whom David calls his Lord. The religious leaders listening to Jesus recognized this and to be a psalm predicting Messiah's coming. David would not have called one of his own sons Lord. So Messiah must be more than just the son of David. He is also the son of God. Yeah. Jesus here was declaring that Messiah's deity and his own is one and the same. I am that of whom David, the one of whom David spoke. A multitude of common people were observing this confrontation, if you will, this meeting of the minds between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and he warns his listeners about these very people. Can you imagine how tense? This interaction is where Jesus is saying about the scribes and the Pharisees, beware of these who come in like wolves in sheep's clothing, who devour widows' houses. I mean, this is embarrassing. It's confrontational. And the common people are listening to what Jesus is saying as he describes the priest and the scribes their false teaching. Jesus is not unambiguous about the truth. And he confronts it as do all the apostles and the New Testament writers. And in this, his final public teaching, Jesus is telling his disciples to beware of the scribes, these self-proclaimed experts of the law and rabbinical teaching. Most scribes were Pharisees. Those who held that office were the Pharisees as well, and they were included in our Lord's strong denunciation of themselves and their teaching. He had no tolerance for false teaching or false teachers, yet these were all held in high esteem of the people, the very ones that Jesus is calling out. The common people thought that that's who you should attain to be. He talks about their praying in public and he's about to examine their giving. And expose all of that. It is all they knew of what they thought was true spirituality, the common people. And they thought we could never be like these men who are perfect, were in their own eyes. If that's what true spirituality is, we will never attain to it. But the Pharisees were neither sincere nor spiritual. How did it come about for the scribes and the Pharisees to be so highly revered and regarded spiritual authorities they are the leaders of jesus's day by the time he appears on the scene how is it that they were authorities as one commentator notes they were held in such high esteem according to jewish tradition moses received the law and gave it to joshua who gave it to the elders who gave it to the prophets who gave it to the scribes now initially the scribes were the copyists. They did nothing but copy the Old Testament law. And then they branched out and began writing their opinions about the law, their commentaries about the law. The Mishnah, the codification of all the oral laws and traditions, declares, this is what it says, it is more culpable to transgress the words of the scribes than those of the Torah. Can you imagine the commentary had replaced the word. The scribes were revered as the great gatekeepers of the law and the protectors of the people. In theory, they deified the law for all in the law we're talking about, not just the law of Moses, but their writings about the law and for all and held to its standards of and obedience to which they pr- promised brought blessing. In reality, as Jesus exposes here, they were hypocrites, sons of hell who made their disciples twice as much sons of hell as they were. Amazingly, our Lord, who is the way, the truth, right up to the very end of his life, is proclaiming the truth, exposing error publicly, openly, unapologetically at the temple, and they would have killed him there if they could have. They were restrained and could not do it. Have you ever wondered? They wanted him dead so much. Why didn't they just seize him? There was a temple police. They had their own police service there, their own guards. They couldn't lay a hand on him because he will lay down his life willingly. He submits to them in the garden. Their arrest is an official Jesus handing himself over to them. They would have sought him now if they could. But our focus here, however, today is not on the error of the scribes so much as our Lord's observation of an area of their life, an area of all of our lives, an area of interest, especially in church. And people accuse the church of making much about this matter of giving. But our Lord brings it up here. And whatever he brings up, we should examine as well and see what the truth is behind it. After his teaching and condemnation of who he calls religious hypocrites, He sits down across from the treasury and observes the various people as they come to put their money into these receptacles. We've been examining the kind of faith our Lord commends. And we begin with, you'll remember the centurion, the Gentile Roman soldier who was over a great company of soldiers. And he asked Jesus to heal his servant. And he says, if you will come, you don't have to come to my servant. You can just speak a word and you'll, he'll be healed. And Jesus commended his faith He said, I've not seen so great a faith as this in all of, all of Israel. And then we saw in Luke 7 a woman of ill repute who'd been gloriously saved. She comes to a, a hypocrite, Simon the Pharisee, has Jesus to dinner just to try to trip him up and to embarrass him and expose him. And in that great feast, this man who thought he knew so much and was so well-bred and so rich, he had not had anyone offered to wash our Lord's feet, which was, it was unthinkable to have a great feast like that and not to do such a thing. This woman comes in, she's so overwhelmed by God's grace and forgiveness. She weeps and cries and washes her, his feet with her tears and wipes it with her hair of course, everybody's appalled by it. Simon says if he was really God, he would know what kind of woman is washing his feet. Jesus reads his mind. He was just thinking that. and says, this woman, because she's forgiven much, is expressing much love for me. We saw where Jesus commended Mary last week, her, the sister of Lazarus who anointed his feet with expensive oil. She broke open a vial of precious Spikenard imported on Jesus, uh, anointing him for his burial. And he says she gets it. Nobody understood that he was headed to the cross, and she was anointing him for his burial. Today, interestingly, here in this text, we see another woman, a poor widow, probably the most fragile and underserved, to use a word of our day, person in all of the class system of Judaism was the widow. Widow. Much is said in the law about caring for the widow and she had no sons to care for her or nephews or anyone like that. She was in in a horrible predicament and this woman must have been that. We don't know what she did to make her living. She was obviously a day laborer. We'll see in just a moment. She worked from day to day to buy the food for that day. The Bible says she's poor. We know that. But our Lord commends her Great faith shown unreservedly by her simple, lavish giving. I want to point out for us the lessons we learn from our Lord's perspective of faith, exemplified by actions. But here in in giving of our resources, as James teaches, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead. In other words, it's ineffective. You may have it, but it doesn't help anybody. If it has no works that accompanies it, it might as well be dead that kind of faith that that doesn't do anything, that never shows or or obeys the, the word of the Lord. But first, I want us to have an understanding of the location of where Jesus is and what he is observing. Of course, he's at the temple, and as I've mentioned in the court of women, it was a broad expanse before you actually got to the holy place and the holy of holies. It's as far as the women could go, and it's where the giving receptacles were lined. There were 13 wooden boxes lined under a colonnade, a wooden box. I'm I'm estimating probably the size of this pulpit. Each one of them had this brass or bronze uh, uh, receptacle that came out from it. If you could just picture, and I'm not picturing it quite white-like, but the old-fashioned gramophones you remember the i'm sure you don't remember you've seen on television they wind them up some of you may have one i don't know but the the first record players and it had this horn-shaped receptacle where the sound came out each one of these wooden box had a, a bronze receptacle and the people would come by and put their money in it and it would make a clinking sound as it went down the receptacle into the wooden box There was a box for different kinds of giving, for the shekel tax, the tithe, and then down to the alms for poor people. And this lady is actually giving her offering into the receptacle for poor people. That's interesting, isn't it? As the money was cast in, the coins made a brassy metal clinging sound. The more one put in, and remember there was no paper currency, all the money would be coins, coins. And so if you're giving a large amount, you can just, almost like a meter, you know, the old-fashioned parking meters, you would put them in there, they'll clink, 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 clink. And the more you gave, the louder the sound. She put in two of the tiniest uh, parts of money, of the Jewish money. But all throughout the day, every day, people could be seen there in the court of women coming up to the treasury boxes and putting in their offerings. It seems that the various wooden boxes were each as I mentioned, designated for a specific offering, down to the benevolent offerings of the collections for the poor. Now, you'll remember our Lord has already taught in His Sermon on the Mount about seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He said there, Take heed, be careful that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, if that's your motivation. And he was intimating that that was the motivation for the scribes and Pharisees largely. They did it as a show to be well thought of, to let people hear their giving. And he said, that otherwise you have no reward of your father, which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, he didn't say don't do that. But when you give, do not sound a trumpet before thee. And that's what he's referring to. When they put in that little trumpet-shaped receptacle, Don't do it to make a sound. Obviously, there was a way to put it in, and there was a way to make the loudest sound that you could. And the bigger the coin and the more of them, they would sound the trumpet. That's what that was called, putting the the, the, the money into that receptacle. Or making it purposefully ring out loudly, and you could hear, I'm sure the the little boys and girls are saying, look how how much that person is giving, bang, bang, cling, 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 cling. You could hear it clanging in, going into the temple box. While all this may sound overly persnickety, the truth is how we do what we do is very telling about us and our motives. We're all creatures of habit. We do things a certain way. Uh, My father was that way. He was a country guy. He never went past the eighth grade but he was so persnickety. I always wondered how someone raised in such dire circumstances could be so particular about everything. I mean, his tools, you would think they were surgeon or dentist uh, scapels. Y'all don't use scapels. What do you, whatever you use, stuff like that to pull teeth with. I mean, if you gave it, it had to be wiped off and lined up. And he never gave you one until you brought back the one you'd already borrowed. And... He was so persnickety, and I never got this. I never got this. Well, he would drink his coffee in a certain way, and I think way out in the country when they boiled the coffee on the stove, it was so hot, he would pour it into a cup. His saucer was almost like a little bowl, and he would pour it from the the boiling coffee into the bowl, and he would blow it and drink it out of the the bowl. I just remember him doing that. And then we get this and Kathy will tell you, I do not emulate, emulate my father. I'm a lot of John Lamb is in me, but this is not. He would fold up his clothes and put them in the dirty clothes hamper. That's how persnickety he was. I don't know what that did. I don't know if that was from the military or what do you fold your clothes in the military and put it? I don't know, but he was persnickety. Now we could say that the way of doing something, we shouldn't be so persnickety about these things. But our Lord gives us some lessons here as He's sitting there watching this, all these people coming and giving, and everybody's making up in their mind this person is a better person because they're making more, more noise at the collection box than the other. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about giving, and that's not even what this message is about. So you can you can hold your billfold, keep it at, at hand. I'm not going to have another offering or anything like that. Well, we are at the end, aren't we? We always have a benevolent offering at the end of the Lord's table. I take that back, but I'm not going to camp out on that today. And You know that I, I say very little about this, but the Bible says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye, upon the first day of the week, let every... One of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. So that gives us some direction when we give on the Lord's day to his work. Every one of us, he, he didn't say there are certain classes of people who are excluded. And then he says in Second Corinthians 9, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver, and he's able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. But notice here in our text, in Mark chapter 12, as we see what our Lord sees, the Holy Spirit is recorded for us. Jesus is sitting there, and he's watching And a man or a Pharisee has come and he's just unloaded a pile of coins sounding the trumpet. I can see her coming, unaffected, nothing to prove or show. I don't believe she was conscious of anyone observing her. That certainly was not what she wanted to take place. It was a crowded courtyard there. People were coming and going. And it wasn't the quietest time in the, the service like it is in our service when the offering is taken. My late father-in-law used to say, why is it that y'all play the saddest? Not that you did that today, Kathy. I'm not saying that it was. This was his take on most. They play a funeral dirge as the deacon gets out his dollar bill and kisses George and says, God be with you till we meet again. and puts him in the offering plate. She wasn't doing it for that. She was not conscious of anyone observing her, but the Lord was. And He always is. Let us always remember as we're gathered here today that whatever we're doing, and whoever is doing it, and whatever part you've had in it, that the Lord is here. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. Let us never forget that as we gather together as His people. The Lord is here. And that makes all the difference, doesn't it? It makes all the differences in what we do, how we hear, what we're doing. The first memory verse we taught our children when they were little is Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. She had no idea that her giving that day would be held up before us here today. She had no idea of that. For all time, I want to point out just a few observations as we close here this morning about this text. First of all, as I've mentioned, Jesus knows and sees. He, he knows and sees everything and, when, and where and how we do what we do. The Holy Spirit records this for us here. This isn't the biblical text, right, for us to take note of, to learn from, that he takes note of how we give and what we give and why we give it. But beyond that, we must be careful not to rest the text. I'm not going to handle this text like most of you think. We must not impose upon the text what it does not say. Our Lord draws no principle regarding giving from this text here. I erroneously have at times, and I will confess that. He doesn't turn around to his disciples and say, See her, that's how you should give. You should give everything. Because they probably would have turned around and said, well, didn't we leave our fishing businesses to follow you? We left Matthew because I left a good paying job as being a tax collector. He doesn't say to them to do that. He doesn't say to us to give just like that woman gave. That the principles of giving are not to be wrested from this text. He's not saying that your giving is not important or noteworthy in heaven if it doesn't make you destitute. I mean, you could use this text to make people on a guilt trip because they don't give everything they have every time they they get paid. That's not what she did is not held up to us as the standard for every person who truly loves the Lord. It's true that she gave all she had. The Bible tells us that. Jesus knew that. They didn't know that, but He does. He says, I'll say, I know you think, he says to his disciples, that you've seen a lot of giving here today, and you've seen the rich ones just put it in there and make a lot of noise, and everybody's oot and odd. but I'll tell you the truth about the matter. This lady is given, in proportion, more than all of them put together because none of them gave everything that they had, but she did. He knows. He's omniscient like that. He can see and he knows. She does exhibit great faith, it is true, because... As the text would tell us, she would have nothing else to live on. She would have to work another day's wage to get food for that day. She, she's a day-by-day worker, as, as you can take from how the, it is presented for us in the text. Our text says here in verse 42, a certain widow threw in two mites, which make a farthing. It helps to clear up the description a bit for us to understand that the mite was the smallest measurement of Jewish money. Uh, It was one sixty-fourth of a denarius. Now just hold on now. Uh, People have accused me of giving too many many details here, but I think it will be helpful just to understand what we're seeing here. A denarius was a day's wage for a common worker in Bible times. So if a, a denarius, if you put it in our day's, Terminology: If fifteen dollars an hour is an expected pay for a day's wage, uh, we're just using that standard, okay? Then about one hundred twenty dollars for a day's wage. One sixty-fourth of that would be about a dollar eighty-eight, and she gave two of them, so about two dollars is what she put in the treasury, okay? I'm not good at math. Some of you, I see some accountants looking at me like this, but you figure it out. That's about what is taking place here. About two dollars she put in there. And you can figure it out a little bit more if you want to. It's not that much money, is it? What some of you pay on co- cups of coffee every day—that'd be a good cheap cup of coffee unless you get it at McDonald's for for two dollars. But I digress. I, you can you can pay however much you want to for your, for your coffee. Being a coffee drinker, I understand. I understand your situation. I no judgment here, but I'm just saying, just to give us kind of a standard of what it was. And since our Lord has omniscience in these matters to know what she was thinking and what she believed, he is the interpreter of this portion of scripture and he ought to always be. You who teach the Bible, you who read the Bible, the Bible will tell you what it means. And the Lord is telling us what it means here. He he knows everything. They don't. I don't, you don't. We never have all the facts, do we? When you think you've got all the facts, please don't act because you probably don't have all the facts. As I've so famously told you some of my own stories here about thinking I had all the facts and didn't have all of the facts. But he does. And when he says something, we can take it as the literal truth because he's a mind reader, he's omniscient, he's God. And so he says there... In verse 44 of our text, they all did cast in out of their abundance. If you have several million and you, you give a thousand dollars, that may be a lot to you and me, but it's, it's, it's proportionate, right? But she, of her want, her need, did cast in all that she had. She doesn't have anything else for today or tomorrow unless she works for it. Even all her living. Do you see? She lived day to day and made her money. I don't know if she was a street sweeper. I don't know what, what she baked bread. I don't know if she wove what whatever she did. But she must have been a day laborer. And we know she was a widow. So she was probably, that connotation tells us she was probably up in years. And yet she was obviously led to give this. But I want you to understand probably why she did if the pharisees held themselves up as the standard the epitome of spirituality and if they gave large sums of money thinking it would help them get to heaven theirs was a total works righteousness system do you not think that the common people would get the impression that you had to dress that part as they dressed in their lavish robes to put on a display in their daily round of life of how spiritual they were and that possibly she gave that money because those who were in religious authority around her gave the example that giving a lot impressed God and would help you get to heaven. I believe that's the interpretation because look in verse 40, which devour widows' houses. How would they do that? By this kind of false teaching, do you see how dangerous false teaching is? There are people on the radio and television right now saying, if you'll send them a certain amount of money, you'll get a blessing because of it. And they can almost give it to the very cent. If you sow a seed here, you can get 10,000% back. You've heard all kinds of crazy things. It's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're to give, and I've given you some biblical New Testament verses all of us are to give of our resources to the Lord. It is the, the Lord has given us the ability to get wealth. But you don't do it to make you spiritual or to get into heaven. You, what would it, what did Jesus say? What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world? What would it profit if he gave the whole world in exchange for his soul? Zero, because you can't do that. You can't earn your way into heaven. We're about to commemorate a simple object lesson of what jesus did on the cross there's only one person who gave their all and it was the son of god he gave everything to purchase our salvation you can give nothing to impress god or to purchase your salvation but to humbly receive the gift that he has given It's so humbling because you can do nothing but come to him and cast yourself on his mercy and say, Lord, save me, a sinner. The disciples were not told to go and do likewise. If the lesson here is on lavish giving or the amount given and that we should all emulate that and give all of our income and all those kinds of things, and I'm not... Saying you shouldn't give greatly to the Lord's work of all people, I would tell you the Lord's work certainly needs it, but that's not what he's teaching here. It would be wrong to use that verse in that way. Could it be that they taught that the, the Pharisees taught that you should the more you gave, the, the more God was pleased, and the closer you'd get to heaven? We see that he says here, this poor lady hath cast more in, though, than they. If they were teaching that, they weren't doing it. Those who, well, I'm not going to criticize them any more than what our Lord did there. He says enough there, but he knows it all, doesn't he? His valuation is all that matters. Not mine or yours, but his. We do what we do for the glory and the honor of the Lord alone. It doesn't matter what others think. And in the matter of salvation, if you're here today and you don't know that you're a child of God, you've not been saved. It is not an outward show of deeds, such as giving or even giving sacrificially. But of you coming to him as a sinner, repenting of your sin, agreeing with him about your sin, and receiving him as Lord and Savior, apart from any religious order. Ritual or deed whatsoever. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Oh, receive him today. Would you bow for prayer? Gracious Lord, the text before us has been a difficult one, and I pray the Holy Spirit of God who preserved it for our learning would unfold it to us today this is the portion that we were to, to, to study and for me to, to preach upon and i pray that you'd take my effort and open hearts and minds and lord i think of those who may be here who do not know you savingly and they may have the wrong idea about what it means to be a christian by joining something or coming to something or giving something lord they they need to know that they must be reconciled to you and that your son came to do just that and that you're giving them this opportunity after hearing your word to be saved. And I would tell you, if you're in that situation, if the Holy Spirit has shown you that you need the Lord, that you need your sins forgiven, all you must do is turn to him just now and go to him and receive his offer of salvation, taking him at his word, and with your whole heart, your mind, soul, and strength, as we read about Tell him of your need and receive his gift of salvation. You can call on him just now. You don't have to go anywhere or do anything, but believe the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says, to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to as many as believed on his name. His word says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, Lord, bless your gospel, we pray. And as we enter this time of observing your table, this picture of of what you did, Let no one here think that by taking this, that it will commend them to you or save them. It's merely a memorial, a beautiful, precious memorial where the the unleavened bread represents your sinless body and your blood that was shed for us, the fruit of the vine, your blood shed for us. Lord, bless this time as we look at this silent sermon of what you did. In Jesus' name, amen.